0: Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, I came across your work quite recently uh, when I saw your speech at the ARC conference, and I really loved your message. And since then, I read both of your books, and I was really heartened by the fact that you were talking about the importance of mothering, which is not a message we hear very often today. We live in a day and age where it's almost taboo to talk about the crucial and essential role that mothers play in an individual's life, but also in the fabric of society. And you've shown that really, really beautifully. I just wanted to say on a personal note that when the videos of the ARC conference came out, we were about three or so weeks maybe into the war here. My husband just got back from reserve duty and I had been immersed in the news and stories of victims and stories of anti-Semitism abroad and was listening to podcasters from all over the world debating whether we should be responding or not, uh, which was a really surreal uh, position to be in, no doubt. And in all of that, it was a relief to listen to something unrelated for a change. But more importantly, uh, it came at a time where I really needed to hear the message that, um, you know, the West is very much alive, um, that there are people who think like I do, that, you know, humans are good and we can innovate and we can grow while taking care of Mother Earth. That there's something special and true about western values and judeo-christian values because of the amazing societies that these values have brought and while there are other cultures and other ways of being and organizing a society that doesn't mean that we need to apologize for our legacy so i really love the conference i really love the message that you were all bringing to the world and it personally gave me a little hope for the future that there is a path forward and there are other people who are working hard you know to make the world a little bit better and to remember these values and if we all just prioritize and organize our lives in the best way we can things can be really good so in in all of that um you know that place I was in it was a really really wonderful message and a piece of that puzzle Really is how society views marriage, family, children, mothering. And I really loved your message here because you were reminding everybody how important mothers are. And personally, that translated for me into, you know, I can be a good person. I can do good in the world through being a mother. There's something sacred in this responsibility and through the sacrifice um, you know, through the the burdens of motherhood and really, you know, maybe going against the culture today and investing in your relationship with your child, you can create an emotionally resilient child. Um you can do good for your family, you can do good for the world at large. You know, that there there is a connection here to how we organize our life um, and how we organize our relationships and our family. And that has a ripple effect. So I think that's all kind of connected, you know, in my mind. So to start, I want to bring people into our world, into this attachment, developmental, psychoanalytic paradigm that we're in. I'm sure a lot of people are listening and wondering, why is mothering so important? What does it mean that a mother emotionally regulates her child? What are we talking about here? So you are a clinical social worker, a psychoanalyst, an author of two best-selling developmental psychology books, and you've experienced many, many clients, mothers, children. What have you found? Why are mothers so important? Bring us into your world. First of all, thank you for
1: having me. Um, And I will say just before I start that I was uh, in London at that art conference, and feeling quite isolated also from what was happening in Israel and very happy to say that the 1,500 leaders at ARC, maybe it was because they were self-selected in, in a certain way, those 1,500 leaders, the people I came in contact with and the leaders of ARC were very supportive of Israel. And that made me feel very safe uh, in an environment that wasn't so safe uh, in the outside world. So just wanted to say that.
0: That's wonderful to hear.
1: Yeah. So mothers, um, let's say that babies are more neurologically fragile than we know, because as a society, we've for quite a long time projected onto babies that they're not fragile, um, which backfires because we say our children aren't resilient, but it's it's a bit paradoxical. If we don't care for our children when they're young, they don't develop in the same way where they become resilient when they're older. If we neglect them when they're young, then in fact they become less resilient when they're older. So the irony of everything is that we as a modern society project onto children that they're more capable of separation, uh, more self-sufficient, more independent. um, And, and, at a very young age, and as a result, we don't give them the love and nurturing they need in those early developmental years that allow them to become resilient later on. So mothers serve a biological as well as an emotional function. They, uh, as you say, help to regulate baby's emotions from moment to moment. We don't come into this world with the ability to keep our feelings from going too high or too low. So what does it mean? It means that babies, um, when they get angry, they go from zero to 60 in three seconds. Um, When they're sad, they go to great depths of sadness. When they're happy, they go to the most incredible highs of happiness. They can't yet regulate those emotions, which is necessary in life if we're going to be mentally healthy. And so it's a mother's Uh, responsibility or a primary attachment figure. And usually that's the mother to regulate those emotions by soothing that baby when that baby's in distress. So mothers are uniquely wired through their hormones to tune into baby's distress when babies become distressed um, or when babies are extremely happy or extremely sad or extremely angry or extremely frustrated by soothing the baby And bringing the baby back to what we call emotional homeostasis, mothers serve a a biological function. It's only after three years that babies and toddlers can begin to internalize what their mothers have done for them so they can do it on their own going forward. The other thing that mothers do is they buffer children from stress, where very young children Uh, are not meant to experience great levels of stress. So contrary to the popular modern culture, which believes that you throw babies into the swimming pool, let them swim, you throw them into daycare, they'll just be fine. They're not fine because, again, they're incredibly neurologically fragile. And our stress regulating system, which is called the limbic system of our brain, uh, is not developed and is not meant to be developed until old, until a child is older. So in the first year, that system is meant to stay offline and be very quiet. Um, and that's why in many parts of the world, mothers wear babies on their bodies, because that part of the brain is meant to stay very dormant with very little action. Um, what we're doing by separating from our babies at a very early age, putting them into daycare with transient strangers who don't have the capacity to soothe those babies because of the sheer ratio of adults to children. Um, and, you know, we're exposing babies to high levels of stress, which means their stress regulating system gets turned on prematurely. And that's not good because what happens is it 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 basically... Um, gets overstimulated at at an age when it's not supposed to be stimulated at all. Um, And by overstimulating it, it becomes overly active and then sort of like a a balloon that you blow up too big, too quickly, it shrivels up, it, it blows out, like a light bulb that you've left on too long, it blows out. In this case, the amygdala shrivels up. By the time that you really want it to be functional for a lifetime, it's now not functional. And so you don't have a stress regulating system, which leads to things like depression, anxiety, ADHD symptoms, um, you know, behavioral problems in children. So, and and in adults, PTSD-like disorders. Um, so I think it's just, it's for me, it's a lack of education. It's ignorance, it's misunderstanding. Uh, and I attribute that to society because society at some point decided that economically it was better for women to be in the workforce and that children be damned and that um, and that it would all work out. And it hasn't all worked out. The levels of uh, mental health disorders in children are at sort of levels that we could never possibly imagine. Everybody talks about global warming and, you know, and, and I, I keep saying, well, I mean, global warming is an issue, but we have... A mental health crisis in our children if our children aren't well uh, then society is ill um, so that's that is what's happening
0: absolutely absolutely i think this is such an important point because we don't realize how important mothering is and we don't realize the downstream effects and that's what you've so beautifully shown when we talk about emotional regulation for children what does that actually look like? This maternal instinct, this attunement, what is happening there? And how is that then um, developing the limbic system? What's happening on a psychological level in terms of what the child is internalizing?
1: Well, Women produce great amounts of oxytocin when they uh, give birth, when they breastfeed, when they nurture their young. Oxytocin is a neurotransmitter in the brain. It's a love hormone. Euphemistically, we call it the love hormone. It helps in the bonding process, but it also um, leads certain behaviors, nurturing behaviors. It makes mothers vigilant about distress. Um, It turns on a part of their brain. That is unique to mothers it, because although fathers can produce oxytocin, it comes from a different part of the brain and it has a different behavioral impact on fathers. It makes fathers more playfully, tactily stimulating of babies. So, what does that mean? Tickling babies and throwing babies up in the air and playing with babies. It makes fathers more playful. Um, but it makes mothers more sensitive empathic nurturers who are attuned to distress. And there was a study that was done in England where mothers and fathers lay in bed together at night when a baby cried, when the baby, their baby cried. The mothers were vigilant and woke up immediately to the baby's cries. The father slept through the cries. Uh, but when there was rustling of leaves outside the window, the fathers woke up and the mothers slept through. Now, why is that? Because fathers produce a different hormone in great quantities called vasopressin, which is the protective aggressive hormone, which makes fathers very attuned to predatorial threats. Because in the old day we had in the old days we had predatorial threats, right? So therefore the fathers were attuned to the leaves rustling outside the window. That is nature, that's evolution. That took, you know, thousands of years for us to develop in this way. Um, And just because as a society, we want to turn things upside down, it's not going to happen overnight. And what's happening is we're ignoring that we're one, not the same mothers and fathers are not the same. They don't perform the same function. But mothers have this this superpower, which is um, to be able to hear babies distress. Now, this is if mothers are healthy. Okay, that I, I put that as a caveat, as a star. As a footnote, mothers who are emotionally healthy, who have been mothered themselves, because what we have been doing and can do is generationally pass down attachment disorders to our daughters. And by not nurturing them, by putting them in daycare too young, by really not being there when they're in distress, we have severed the ties, the evolutionary ties that took thousands of years to form through attachment disorders, where young mothers cannot hear their babies in the same way, where they do not feel the empathy for their baby's distress, where they can put a baby in a bathroom and shut a door so the baby's cries are, are not heard by them. Um, so we're talking healthy mothers. Healthy mothers have a superpower, which is they hear their baby's distress and they want to soothe that baby in distress. That Amazing. is a superpower, and fathers do not have that
0: superpower absolutely. I think you know you're touching on this this fact that today the maternal instinct is considered uh you know a ploy of the patriarchy. You hear that message that this idea that women have this innate ability to empathize and to nurture you know I've heard uh, in all sorts of places um Modern feminists, you know, claiming that that's a a ploy to keep uh, women in the home, and I think it's a tragedy. What what do you think about that? Listen, they're 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 ill informed. They need only to look at other mammals.
1: I mean, we are a mammal. I don't know why they think they're above any other mammal. Uh, The size of our brain does not make us any different in terms of our nurturing instincts. And so, if you look at every other mammal, they they perform their They're nurturing mothering duties in the same way that we do. Uh, There's a lot of research. Gosh, a lot of it is animal research. This man named Michael Meaney did research to show that with rats, if mother rats licked and groomed their young, those babies generationally expressed that licking and grooming behavior to the next generation, but they also produced young who were more resilient then the mothers who didn't lick and groom their young. So we have a lot of young mothers running around, not licking and grooming their young. And a lot of feminists say, you don't have to lick and groom your young. They'll be just fine. That's what Gloria Steinem said. Go to work, go to work, be part of the movement. If you don't go to work, you're not part of the movement and your children will be just fine. She never had children. Right. She could say that because she never had children. She never tapped into those instincts. Um, But we're just mammals like any other mammal. So that is just an ignorant statement.
0: Absolutely. And on Gloria Steinem and that whole crew, many of these women had severe attachment disorders and other mental health issues that probably arose from those attachment disorders and their unhealthy family lives. And their model wasn't a healthy model of what mothering, family, marriage could look like. And while there was progress made in terms of the choices that women can have outside of the home, I think we, instead of raising the value of femininity itself, because I think there was a valid argument, um, if you will, of the uh, second wave feminists to really, um, you know, have a place at the table for women to be able to choose how they want to organize their lives. I think the shame, though, is that in order to fulfill that, the message was also, if you aren't working full time and putting your children in daycare, then you are betraying the mission. And I think that's a real, real shame. And, you know, I really do hope that we'll see uh, after the pendulum has swung uh, in that extreme direction, I think, I hope, Uh, We can take all of the tremendous freedoms that we have today and organize our lives in a way that make us fulfilled on a personal level, whether it's career or other ambitions, but also allow us to integrate a healthy family life. So hopefully, hopefully we can find both of these. And I think that what you're doing is reminding us of the value of femininity. What is mothering? you know what is this role that all women, if they choose to be mothers they they are transformed into right there's uh things in your brain that that uh wake up uh, from this whole hormonal transformation uh, so I think it's really important for people to know and I don't think that most people do know that and on the on the you know rat studies and all of these mammal studies, the the offspring aren't only emotionally resilient, but there's all sorts of, you know, Im- immunological markers, cortisol levels of how healthy are these individuals going to be. So there is uh there is real, real value uh in what a mother does. And in order to understand this better, maybe let's look at what happens when we don't get what we need <laughs> in humans, when humans are put in daycare. Or their mothers are absent, emotionally uh, absent, you know, emotionally disconnected, uh, schizoid sometimes as you call it, being able to really disconnect emotionally from a child who's in pain. Uh, So what happens there to the child? And we'll get into uh, also uh, why mothers are often like this in terms of the postpartum depression.
1: Well, as I said, the first thing that happens is children get very high salivary cortisol levels. So they tested salivary cortisol in children in daycare, um, and they they have very high stress levels in their, in their bodies. And as I said, that's not a great thing for children. Small amounts, incremental amounts of uh, frustration or stress are how we learn resilience, but the levels are off the charts because these children are separated from they're separated from the person that provides them with a sense of safety in the world. Um, so, uh, and that that salivary cortisol level uh, equates later to emotional dysregulation, right? And the inability to regulate uh, feelings of, of uh, stress. So you have that. And then eventually if it's chronic, then it becomes an attachment disorder. Meaning if mothers are not physically and emotionally, I mean, let me say this, that Mothers can be physically present for their children and not be emotionally present. So what I say about quality time is it's not a real thing. It's a made up thing. You know, a lot of this is just made up and myth. You have to be there physically as well as emotionally. You have to be there uh, for your children. If you're not there physically, you can't be there emotionally. Uh, But you can be there physically and not there emotionally, right? So the idea is that you um, uh, if you're not there, children develop strategies, uh, for the most part, to cope with the absence. And we call those defenses, right? But the problem is an attachment disorder is a pathological defense. It's a defense that at some point will break down because it, it it's not really a healthy defense, right? We have healthy defenses and less health defenses. So children who are faced with too much uh, either Uh, either their parents' distraction or depression or absence, um, will develop one of three attachment disorders usually. Uh, The first is an avoidant attachment disorder. And that is, uh, you know, you come back from quote unquote work or being away from your child and your child looks away from you, uh, doesn't want to engage you, but also is indiscriminately engaging other adults, nannies, or uh, other adults, they'll go up indiscriminately to try to attach to other adults, whether it's nursery school teachers or, or daycare workers. Or, um, and so that correlates later on with the inability to have healthy relationships and also depression. Uh, another attachment disorder that we see is something called an ambivalent attachment disorder where mothers will come back and those babies will cling desperately to the mothers because they know that the mothers will leave again Uh, And they are incredibly emotionally fractious and literally cling like rhesus monkeys to their mommies and are hysterical when their mothers try to leave again. Um, And that correlates later to anxiety in children and and adolescents and adults. But the most concerning is something called the disorganized attachment disorder, which Mm -hmm. is an attachment disorder that has no strategy. So the other two, at least there's a strategy. You know, with an avoidant attachment disorder, the strategy is my mommy isn't there for me. I have to deal with life of my own. I'm going to, you know, I'm turning away from her. The ambivalent attachment disorder is my mommy's going to leave me again. I'm going to grip on and not let go. But a disorganized attachment disorder is the absence of a strategy. And so therefore, those babies cycle through all the strategies. They'll go from clinging to looking away to getting angry and slapping their mother, to clinging, to looking away. And those babies are more likely to become borderline personality disorders later on in terms of mental illness. Um, And so, you know, that lack of a strategy and all of those attachment disorders are passed down generationally. So if you had one of those attachment disorders, if your mother had one of those attachment disorders, it's more likely to be passed down generationally to you and then to your children unless you break the cycle, right? So it's why I treat mothers. So to tell them that there's hope, you can break this cycle, but you have to get help. You can't do it on your own. Um, Those attachment disorders were not formed in isolation. They were formed as a result of a dysfunctional relationship. And then the only thing to cure them is a healthy relationship with a therapist. And that relationship is what actually heals that mother so she can interrupt the cycle of generational expression of trauma.
0: Right, right. And for women who are currently uh, putting their children in daycare and yep. they're working full time and they're saying, you know, my child is fine. Uh they they love uh you know the caregivers at the daycare or they love their babysitter. Uh and they don't show too much distress uh when I'm gone or uh, you know when I come back. What would you say to those women?
1: So, so what I would say is first you have to know what a healthy attachment looks like. So a healthy attachment looks like this. You come back from work uh, and that baby uh, welcomes you with open arms and gives you lots of love and is very forgiving. And to say that that um, if you have a single surrogate or a babysitter who is consistent, who is going to be with you for years and years, who is sensitive, empathic and nurturing, um, in order of appearance, the best after a mother would be kinship bonds, someone who is related to that baby, a grandmother, an aunt, a father. That would be the first uh, after a mother. Then would be a single surrogate, meaning a nanny or a babysitter. Um, the next would be sharing a nanny with another mother, uh, because that's still going to lower the ratio. The least good is daycare. So um, it is possible, you know, as we say, some children, um, there's always, the way I put it is, it sounds terrible, but there's always survivors in a shipwreck. So there's some children that will get through daycare. You don't want to bet on that because what happens is there are certain um, vulnerable points in development where children will express that trauma. And often children can seemingly hold it together for short periods of time or even long periods of time. But it's at those vulnerable points that children then will develop some of those mental health issues that I described. Uh, Meaning your child can seem fine and then adolescence comes and they fall into a deep depression or develop severe anxiety. And you wonder why, because they seem fine the whole time. And I say, because the way that it works is trauma doesn't necessarily... Sort of like mourning. I don't know if you've ever known somebody who lost a parent or lost a spouse or lost a child. They don't always cry right away. They don't even feel the sad feelings right away. So everybody mourns at different times. And children can have mourning responses or trauma responses at a much later date than the actual occurrence of the trauma. And so, yeah, your child can seem fine. But the problem is you've made your child more vulnerable in general by making them turn on these defensive reactions. And so they are more likely to be fragile later on when they encounter what I call life's adversities, natural adversities. Adolescence is a normal natural adversity that challenges all children's functioning, right? Um, and, And so, and if they have a difficult adolescence, if they're socially challenged, if they have weight issues, if they... Uh, look a little different or sound a little different or dance to their own drummer and they have difficulty in adolescence if they have a learning disability if something is more challenging for them then we say adolescence can be a real breaking point it's like putting too much weight on a very very old broken down bridge that looked fine but really wasn't fine
0: the fact that These things often take some time to show up or they show up in ways where we might not be connecting the dots. For instance, uh, a child who's in daycare or not in daycare, but just his mother isn't around most of the day is showing aggressive behavior, for instance. Right. He's uh, kicking other kids and uh, just being um, aggressive in the home. What's happening there? How is that connected?
1: So that's the fight or flight response. So, what we, so if you ask any teacher in primary school to point out the kids that have been in daycare, they can tell you which children have been in daycare. Wow. Or which children have been neglected by their parents, even if their parents were home. What are they picking um, up on? Yeah, they're picking up on fight or flight. So we have a natural evolutionary response to danger, to threat. Uh, which is that we either go into the fight mode, which is the aggressive mode. So with those children, you see more, as you say, more hitting, more kicking, more biting, uh, more physical and emotional aggression um, towards other children. With the flight mode, you see more distractibility. So everyone is running around going, oh my God, 50% of children have ADHD. No, they don't. First of all, ADHD is not a D. It's not a disorder. And there's a movement to take the D off because it's not a disorder. It's a stress response. It's the flight mode of our stress system. So what it means is that we've exposed that child to too much stress in one way or another. um, And it's our job to figure out how we've exposed them to that stress. It could be that we put force them into a situation when they were too young Uh, to cope with that separation. It could be that they have a learning disorder that's not diagnosed, but it could be many things. It could be that there's conflict in the family, but that uh, attentional issue is the flight mode of fight or flight. So we either see fight or we see flight as a result, often as a result of being in early daycare, but there are other reasons too. But those are stress responses, essentially.
0: And what would you say to people who uh, think that children need the socialization and daycare and that otherwise, you know, they won't be able to to get by in the world. Great. Right. It's another myth.
1: So children need
0: socialization
1: over the age of three, um, but they don't need socialization under the age of three. So I always say to mothers, when you go to a mommy and me class, when you go to a music class, you're doing it for you, which is a very good reason to do it, because mothers shouldn't be isolated when they're raising children. This is a, also a modern Strange phenomenon where we live in separate homes, separate houses. You know, we don't live in group situations with extended family. We don't. You know, and and I do blame in a way. I blame the modern myth of feminism because I'm a feminist, but I'm a modern feminist. I'm not. I'm not the old fashioned feminism had women go- all women going out to work full time, and that meant there were no mothers for other mothers who stayed home to get together and go to gym classes and music classes. And you found mothers were sitting in classes with nannies, which is fine. You know, I, I sat in classes with nannies and I got to know lovely nannies. They were the most lovely, lovely women. And as a result, years later, I started a nanny uh, agency uh, for four years, I, I was involved in it because I really love those nannies, most of them.
0: Oh, beautiful. Um,
1: but, but for a lot of mothers, that's, that's hard because they're sitting there and their frame of reference is really different than a woman who's hired to care for that baby versus them who, you know, is staying home with their baby. Um, but, you know, essentially mothers, um, uh, you know, it, it, I, think, I think it's hard for mothers to be isolated and alone. But those classes are meant for mothers, not for babies. Babies don't need socialization. They're they're completely consumed with their primary attachment figure. All they want is that primary attachment figure. They want their mother's eyes. They want their mother's smile. They want their mother's attention. They don't want other children or need other children. In fact, they're doing something called parallel play till three, which is that they're not even interacting with them really. So it's not for them daycare. It's for you. Um, And so that's really important because that is a justification for leaving your child so young and
0: daycare. Right, right. And what about a mother who has a child who's very, very sensitive, you know, out of the womb and she's overwhelmed and she shuts this baby out and this baby grows up to be a very emotionally sensitive child an adolescent. What is happening there? What is the sensitivity? And is there anything that mothers can do to help a child who's sensitive?
1: Well, the research shows that more babies are born neurologically sensitive or sensitive to stress than we've ever known before. And what that means is that there's no gene for mental illness. There's no gene for any other form of mental illness other than schizophrenia and bipolar. There is some genetic connection. Otherwise, it has to do with um, stress regulation. So babies who are born more sensitive and sensitivity is a gene that's passed down generationally and genetically. Um, So uh, that sensitivity to stress, the the research shows that when mothers are emotionally and physically present um, in the first three years, it neutralizes the expression of that gene. So that baby has as good a chance of growing up emotionally healthy as a baby born without that, that sensitivity gene. But that sensitivity to stress means that baby is, if, if not provided with sensitive empathic nurturing, more likely to develop things like anxiety, depression, ADHD, personality disorders. Um, and so, you know, there's something we can do about it, which is we need to be as present as possible if we have a sensitive baby. And what are those sens- neurologically sensitive babies look like? They're harder to soothe when they're born. They're the babies who the mothers say, I'm losing my mind, my baby. I can't put them down for even a minute. They cry all the time. They're basically babies that are completely overwhelmed by the world they're born into. Uh, Sight, sound, smells, touch, everything uh, kind of is a shock to them. And the only thing that comforts them is the presence of the person who is their entire universe, which is their primary attachment figure. So when we leave a sensitive baby in daycare, or when we leave a sensitive baby with an alternative caregiver, when they're very young, we basically are um, turning on that sensitive gene rather than turning it off. Right. Um, And those babies, as I said, are more likely later on to develop things like anxiety, depression, and mental illness.
0: I have to say that this piece of information uh, personally uh, almost takes the pressure off because you never know what's going to happen, what kind of child you're going to have. And knowing that I can have an emotionally sensitive child, and if I'm just there for them, if in those three first, uh, you know, more demanding years, I help them through their emotions they're going to become resilient. So, you know, there's always a fear, I'm sure, that parents have of, you know, what will be with my child and uh, you want them to be strong and, uh, and have good mental health, uh, you know, be fulfilled. And knowing that you have such an impact, even if the genetics are um, that the child is sensitive, I think that's amazing. And I think that really shifts the Mental illness paradigm, understanding that these mental illnesses are not just genetic, but it's genes and environment. And that interaction brings about um, these mental disorders. So I think that's uh, really important to know. Now we've talked about the problems with daycare and how it's really impossible for so few caregivers to soothe and nurture uh, children and to give them what they need. Now, a uh, young mother or soon to be mother or woman who's thinking of how she wants to organize her life when she has kids, what would be an ideal situation? And of course, there are different ways of looking at these uh at these things and how to organize your life and your community. Uh, but I think that the important thing that you keep mentioning is community and mm-hmm. having a tribe around you, whether that's your husband Uh, your parents, uh, his parents, uh, siblings, you know, aunts, uncles, a neighbor, um, other uh, mothers, uh, you know, in your neighborhood. How does a woman organize her life to best care for her child, but also to care for herself so she doesn't, uh, you know, slip into postpartum depression, which so many women suffer from?
1: Well, postpartum depression is interesting because I think, again, another societal myth, so many societal myths that it's all hormonal. Mm -hmm. Um, The hormones are a catalyst for postpartum depression, uh, but they're not the cause of postpartum depression. The catalyst opens up a door in that young woman uh, Mm -hmm. to her past experiences of her own mother to her relationship with her own mother, because becoming a mother, uh, you know, in and of itself connects you deeply with your own experience of your mother and being a child. And so if you had a joyful experience of being a child, if you had a loving, very present mother who loved being a mother, didn't resent it, was as present as possible, then then the portal, the door that gets opened up is generally a happy one. You get the baby and you go, oh my God, this is the best thing since the invention of the refrigerator, you know. This is wonderful. But if your trauma has been buried, now is the time when it often comes up to rear its head. And, um, and so you can have a young woman who said, yeah, my mother worked all the time, I was put in daycare, I, I'm fine, look at me, I'm great, you know, I'm, I'm powerful, I work, I make money, I'm going to have a baby and go right back to work. Then they have a baby and that that defense breaks down. Uh, you know, the denial of years of that trauma and what they're exposed to is uh, their mother's ambivalence about mothering, Um, their own experience of aloneness and abandonment and absence. And and so they break down. That's when you break down. That is one of those vulnerable points. Um, And we don't talk about that because that would imply that we need to reflect on how we're parenting children. So there's another reason, which is that young women feel incredibly conflicted. They feel conflicted about mothering. They feel conflicted about working. And so they, they have a baby with the intention of going back to work as quickly as possible. Uh, they say, oh, I'm going to take off a nice long period. My, my office gives me three months. Three months is when, as I say, the baby is just waking up, is literally just waking up. For the first three right. months, the baby is literally in a stupor, uh, a connected th- stupor. But it's at three months that the baby really starts to open their eyes and touch her hair And that's when you're asking mothers to leave. Um, And so mothers plan to go back. So uh, with a promise they make to their work and a promise they make to their spouses and a promise they make to themselves. And so what happens is how can they get connected, deeply connected to this baby if they have to leave in six weeks or three months or even five months, right? And so they hold back. There's a sort of internal conflict. Depression is nothing more than internal conflict. Uh, It's based on generally neuroses. The word neuroses means internal conflict, the push and the pull inside of you. If a mother has a baby and says, I want to deeply connect with this baby. I'm going to take as much time off as I need to based on my relationship with this baby there would be less postpartum depression. If she planned with her work and her spouse that she doesn't know how long she's going to be gone, uh, that she's to see how she feels, there wouldn't be as much conflict in those women. But it's set up from the beginning to be a disaster when you say, I'm going to take three months and then I'm going to go. Because one, it interrupts the attachment experience because you're not going to get deeply attached. I mean, I always use this as an example with patients. If somebody tells you that, if somebody in college tells you that they're going to go on a, on an abroad program in the spring and it's December, are you going to get attached to that person because they're going to go away and then you're not going to see them for the spring semester and you're not going to see them for the summer and you may not see them till next year and who knows, right?
0: Right, right. Do you just
1: say, no, I'm not going to date that person. I'm not going to get put attached. Put up a wall. You put up a wall. So- why would you get attached to a baby deeply? There are some unconscious defenses that mothers don't realize they've set up. Um, So the system is all wrong, right? So we don't say to mothers, you know, you may want to stay with that baby. And if you do, you have to make plans to allow yourself to do that. Financial plans, strategize so you don't need the money. Uh, Work it out with your work so you take As much time unpaid, because our system is terrible in this country, uh, as much time unpaid as you can. Um, And then say, you'll see, you know, you don't know how you're going to feel. Tell your spouse that you probably are, you want to wait and see to see when you go back to work. Um, And then you want to potentially go back to work part time. You know, a lot of it is just, uh, I say the, um, one of the things that causes the most unhappiness in human beings are unrealistic expectations. And so I would say that postpartum depression also has a lot to do with creating unrealistic expectations of yourselves and and those circumstances.
0: I think that a lot of women go into this, uh, you know, really with the narrative that they'll get pregnant, they'll get through the pregnancy. Then once the baby comes, you know, they can drink alcohol and eat all the things they weren't allowed to eat. And, you know, within six weeks, they're back at work and that it'll all just be fine. And I think that most women don't prepare themselves for um, this huge transformation that happens, you know, in your own experience, in your values and what's important to you. All of a sudden, there's another creature there. And that takes a lot of time for both you and the baby um, to to, you know, Get comfortable with yeah and what we were talking about you know of the mother being there uh, with the baby and having also that support around her today that sounds uh, you know undoable, impossible, but really uh, in the past we were living in intergenerational communities where you were or you were living with other families close by with other mothers, uh, so you had the support network you had just the logistics of, uh, you know, someone else that could help you with a child throughout that postpartum phase. Uh, And we've lost that. We've lost those close connections, uh, you know, to the grandparents and to our neighbors and to all of these different people in our lives that could help us, you know, be good parents and be good mothers. What we're talking about now of dedicating more time to your child during those years I think puts a lot of women off when they think of their careers and they think of their own personal development and they've never heard that first of all being a mother might fulfill them but they've never heard of this balancing act of being able to have it all just not at the same time right looking forward uh and seeing how do I want to organize my life in terms of, you know, university years, when you want to uh, meet a man, get married, have children, how you see your career developing through those years. And life is long and we don't often think of our careers um, as something that unfolds uh, throughout time. But you really talk about this, of how we we can, uh, you know, develop and we can Uh, still be in the workforce, but we do need to think about things a little differently. So what have you found in terms of women fulfilling themselves outside of the home, but doing so in a way that keeps everything else at balance? Well, I I
1: don't think we talk about uh, a whole life with young women. From a very young age, we talk about careers. Um, It's very tunnel vision. It's not talking about a whole life. What makes for a happy and whole life? Um, And so because we focus so vigorously, so aggressively on career development, uh, you know, what happens is these young women get to the age of childbearing. And one, they're not, many of them are not even interested in having children. And if they are, they're ambivalent about it. Um, It feels like something that is disruptive. It feels like something that will, you know, take more away from them than it will give to them. And I blame media for that. I blame uh, entertainment for that. I blame a culture that uh, kind of uh, demeaned and diminished the importance of mothering and um, even uh, ostracized women who decided they wanted to care for their children as meaningful work. And so, you know, if you look at the old messaging, societal messaging and media messaging and entertainment messaging uh, from my mother's generation, my mother raised children in the forties. The messaging was that family was the most important thing in your life. It was much healthier messaging, Um, you know, I think the women's movement balanced things out to say you don't have to have children to be happy, right? You can have a career and not have children and still be happy and be procreative and find other ways to create, you know, but um, and that's a good thing. So there's a lot that came out of the women's movement that was good, but what it didn't do is say, you know, if you do want to have children, there's joy in it and children are joyful and it's hard. It's hard work. It's probably the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it's incredibly, uh, you know, joyful and wonderful. And that love is going to be the most meaningful thing in your life. But again, I think that we confuse young women at a very early age to tell them that the only thing that matters is getting good grades to get into a good school, to have a career, to make lots of money and get lots of stuff.
0: I think that leaves a lot of women feeling uh, at a loss when they've reached, you know, the age of 30, uh, whether they're still single in a relationship, but they're they feel that the way that they're living their life isn't uh, making them happy you know the values that they're aligning their lives by the careers that they're chasing they find themselves at a loss this these things aren't fulfilling them and i think as you said we don't talk about a life we don't talk about a developmental track the fact that we have different stages of life and that we change as human beings you know we go through these transformations and we fill these different roles And we don't talk about it. We only talk about the economics of it. And there's a very uh, short-sighted kind of view of a whole child's life. Uh, They're being told, uh, you know, that they need to get into college and get a good job. And there's no talk of how to organize your life in terms of relationships, family, children. Uh, And I think that message is sent uh, to women and to men. It is. You know, monogamy and marriage maybe is in the way to go and that fathers aren't really necessary and then women uh you know who might want to become mothers don't have uh, the support of a uh, of a father uh in the picture which is so important uh so i think that these messages really really are destructive about fathers for a minute if you could uh give us give us a bit of the details of what is a father's role in terms of the connection with the child and, uh, you know, what a father teaches a child, but also in relationship with the mother. So fathers
1: are, are critical to children's development in a different way. Um, so, you know, when we talk about mothers, it doesn't mean that fathers aren't important. So, as I said, father's behavior, nurturing behavior is focused on separation, playfulness, exploration, um physical play, it's all about uh, resilience in a different way and exploration of the world and independence and separation. So we say that mothers are the objects of attachment and fathers are the objects of separation. Um, And, you know, what's happening is in a way, fathers have been taught to feel uh, jealous of the relationship that mothers have with babies. It's really a problem as opposed to seeing the value of their relationship, which is that when you have mothers, single mothers by choice who have no fathers on the scene, who've gone to sperm banks and whatever, those children have terrible separation problems. They sleep with their mothers often past the point that it's healthy. The mothers relate to them like a partner rather than a child. Uh, and so those children often suffer from the ability to separate, right? And, and so fathers serve this critical function of seducing babies away from mothers when the time is right um, to explore the world and, and become more interdependent, right? And independent. And so, yet yeah, fathers serve also the role of helping to regulate other emotions that mothers don't regulate as well, like aggression. Fathers regulate aggression more than mothers. Mothers regulate distress, fear, sadness, Uh, and fathers help to regulate things like aggression and excitement. Right. right. Um, And so, uh, yeah, I mean, fathers are also really, really necessary. And when fathers aren't on the scene, when there are no fathers, children don't separate. Children don't learn to regulate aggressive feelings. Uh, You find that children of... Single mothers without fathers often have aggression regulation issues. They tend to be more aggressive. They tend not to be able to regulate risk-taking behaviors or excitement. Um, Fathers teach that, you know, yes, you can, you know, uh, roller skate fast or you can ski fast, but you have to be careful as well. You know, you you, you ski fast, but you have to do it, you know, with an eye on self-preservation. They help to regulate that. Kind of excitatory behavior, um, that that impulse regulation comes from fathers, not from mothers. Well, so right. I, you know, I think fathers are critical as well. They're just not critical in the same way. So I think what's happened is this, uh, particularly in northern European countries, this idea of the generic nature of attachment. The Mm-hmm. The the gender neutrality argument, it just doesn't work because we're really wired differently and we're good
0: at different things. Right. Again, right.
1: I use the caveat if we're healthy.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. A uh, woman who's not healthy is probably not going to have that uh, emotional attunement as much. But what you're talking about, this gender neutrality, uh, in the language of psychology, attachment, a lot of times uh, relationship psychology uh, is gender neutral, when really we kind of get into the same messes and there's the same patterns of, you know, husband and wife uh, that we don't uh, we don't often talk about. In this case, the role of mother and father, I think that the fact that people don't know the differing roles, the fact that the mother is more attuned to emotions of distress and soothing those while uh, the father comes online a little bit later. Uh, you know, his role uh, uh, at the beginning is more uh, to create a holding environment for the mother as she creates her holding environment for the baby. Uh, but later on, as the baby grows up and and starts to separate and starts to explore, um, the father kind of seduces the baby away from the mother into play, into a rough and tumble play. Also, help the child, you know, develop an awareness of their physical capabilities you know and uh, what hurts and what's fun and uh, how to socialize with others and this enforcing of boundaries and the regulation of aggression for instance and excitement i think that a lot of women don't realize that uh, men are men do this naturally and and they need to be left alone when they're doing that too right a lot of mothers are are quick to kind of stop uh the more rough and tumble play um because of, you know, their own uh, fear. Uh, and if uh, the the father is kind of disciplining the child in, in a way that's more assertive, sometimes, you know, in certain relationships, uh, mothers intervene and they don't let that happen. So I think just understanding what we're each good at, uh, you know, that we have different roles and we've evolved in different ways. Uh, and, you know, within that as well, uh, we have our individual personalities and some men might be have a, a softer touch. Uh, some women uh, might have a difficult time with emotional attunement. But overall, uh, these are the roles and these are, these are the strengths that we've been given. Uh, it's, it's better to use them instead of trying to constantly, uh, you know, even the playing field and equalize everything, uh, which doesn't work and I think just leads to a lot of frustration. You know, it's the idea of
1: layering. I don't know if you know that
0: in the old days, uh, canvases and
1: were expensive. So painters mm-hmm. used to paint on top of paintings. They used to, you know, overlay different paintings. Right. They would paint a painting and paint another painting on top. And there are ways of actually seeing the deepest layer, you know, using technology. you oh, seeing wow. the first painting. And if you will, even the mothers who struggle with nurturing... Um, feel very disconnected, may have attachment disorders. I always find that when you ask them, who is the primary attachment figure? They'll say, it's me. Yeah. And it's almost like the first layer of hate. You can see through to the instincts, even right. if the mother has layered on top of it over the years, Our life has layered defense and defense and defense. Em- immediately when you ask them, who is the primary attachment figure? they'll say, well, it's me, right? Even if they're not there, even if the father's there. So I think that's the way that you can see that the instincts are somewhere deeply alive in that mother, even if they're buried very deep.
0: I wanted to talk about, you know, how our society views femininity as such. Mm -hmm. You know, and Mm -hmm. I think that the negative attitude towards mothering, that comes out of a devaluing of femininity. And one of the troubles that I have with the feminist movement is that while they accomplished uh, a lot for women, I think that they did so at the expense of how we look at femininity as a society and whether we value it or not. And I think that one of the side effects, um, maybe it was intentional, uh, but maybe it wasn't. One of the side effects was that instead of raising the value of femininity and, <laughs> yeah. you know, how we how we regard women and, you know, women's virtues in societies, what we did is we said, OK, you know what? Women can be just like men. And here we go. We're going to deny our femininity. We're going to compete uh, with men, you know, in their world. And I think that's a real tragedy. And it's kind of missing the point. And, you know, we did need. Freedom, we didn't need the independence. There were certain cultural barriers that needed breaking. But, you know, after having uh, made that progress, and I don't know if, uh, do you know Esther Harding? (laughs) Yes. So she she has a really great analysis of this, in my opinion, where she says that in order for women, uh, womankind, to develop their masculine side, we needed to go a little bit on the extreme. We needed to deny our femininity almost in the same way that men have to go through a separation from the mother and a separation from the feminine to, you know, develop their masculinity. So in a similar way, you know, we, we really, a uh, generation or two, really went all in to develop that masculine side. But I think that many of us have done so at the expense of our femininity, our feminine virtues. And we've lost touch with what that means. When you ask people today, what is a woman? They don't know what to answer you. They don't know if to give you a biological answer, a psychological answer. Uh, you know, they, d- they don't know what this creature does <laughs> and what she's good at. And that just amazes me. Uh, we've, we've lost touch of what masculinity means and what femininity means and why we need both of these energies. I mean, one would ask why it wasn't called the masculinist, masculinism
1: as opposed to feminism or the masculinist movement, because that's what it was. It was ma- masculating women. Right. It wasn't feminizing women. So I always thought it was funny that it was called the feminist movement. I have a t-shirt from an organization called Big Ocean Women that they gave me, which is, and it's their tagline, maternal feminism, because it the, the word femininity is not a word that I associate with the feminist movement. Yes. Uh, It's more of it was more of the masculinizing of women, um, which, again, as you say, uh, had its role at some point in society. And sometimes movements have to go very far uh, to accomplish things, um, even be violent in a way uh, without being physically violent. It was sort of a violent movement, which violated the relationships between mothers and children. But it's got to come back because it is still very much um, in an extreme place. And, right. and 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 again, I think a lot of damage was done. A lot of good was done, but a lot of connections were severed. A lot of um, myths were created and very destructive ones. And so Now, I think you have three generations, soon to be four generations from that movement. And, um, you know, obviously there has been some good, but there's also been a lot that's destructive about that movement Um, in terms of women hating their femininity, women rejecting being women, um, you know, really wanting to be men, you know, and when it comes to raising children saying, well, I don't want to do that that's for women. That's, I'm, you know, I I don't know what I am, but I don't want to do that. And so, yeah, we, a lot, it was, there was a lot of destructiveness in that movement. Um, But as you say, movements can um, correct themselves, not to go back to having women barefoot and pregnant and in the kitchen and having no choices. So the feminist movement was meant to give women choices, And I think it's very important to recognize that having children is not the only path to happiness. And for many women, they probably shouldn't have children, to be frank. Um, Penelope Leach, long before me, um, said, it's anybody can have a child, which obviously isn't true, because not anybody can have a child. We see with fertility issues, you know, most people can have a child. But You don't have a child unless you can care for that child, unless you want to care for that child. Don't have a child because you're doing a lot of damage. I don't think we teach that to young women. Don't have children. The natality movement would would kill me for saying this because they're like, everybody should have children. I'm like, no, not everybody should have children. Some people are very damaged and shouldn't have children. Or some people, you know, their nurturing parts have been severed so completely after three generations of generational expression that they shouldn't have children. And I I, say that quite wholeheartedly, that not everyone should have
0: children. I agree uh, with your approach. And I, I think that, you know, some people who are more traditional conservative, you know, their approach is everybody should be having children and that is the way to go. But I do agree that because of the tremendous responsibility, you know, and the real sacrifice and the real burden, I'm, you know, thinking of myself today, I'm looking forward to it. You know, I'm ready. I'm in a place in my life where where that seems like the next step. And if I'm thinking of myself two years ago, three years ago, it was a thought, you know, it was in the background. I knew it was something that I wanted to do. But I wasn't really ready yet. And so I think that there are different stages and not everyone needs to. But definitely if you want to, understanding that there's a sacred responsibility here. And the more prepared you are, the more conscious you are of, you know, your own baggage, your own demons. We all, uh, you know, have uh, skeletons in the closet, but we, we all have things that are unresolved. And if we don't, you know, open the hood and take a look and understand what motherhood means, I think a lot of people can enter into this uh, very blindly, very naively, uh, you know, with a a makeshift narrative that's really kind of a collective social delusion where, you know, you can have the baby in three weeks, you're back uh, at the office pumping and all is well. Uh, And that's clearly... Clearly not the case, but I think uh, you know your your message is so important for really waking women up to the reality of what it is to be a woman, and that if you want to have motherhood as part of your life, there is a transformation here. you know you are not the same person before and after, and you need to think about uh, what you want your life to look like you need to reflect you need to meditate uh, in order for for everything to align uh, for things uh, you know to go well for you and your family Uh, I think this is a really a message that isn't heard enough and it's so uh, heartwarming uh, you know to hear it and I think that uh, more women need it whether they're you know the four kids uh, just trying to figure it all out and uh, understand life and themselves and whether, you know, they're already married, they have children, uh, whether their children are showing, you know, behavioral issues or not, um, trying to think how do we organize our lives in a way that is best for everyone, you know, women, men, mothers, fathers, the children, uh, and how if we each do a little bit of that, you know, if we all take care of our own gardens, then we can... Uh, really make a difference. And I think we don't have that message anymore. And that's a shame. If people want to dive deeper into your work uh, after hearing the conversation today, where can they find you?
1: www.comisar.com is my website and it's K-O-M-I-S-A-R.com. And on there, you will see, uh, you can see the books that I've written. You can see the articles that I've written. and, uh, and have ways to contact me uh, in terms of my, my clinical practice. So it's all on that website.
0: Wonderful. I'll be sure to include in the show notes link to everything. Thank you so much, Erica. This has been so wonderful. Thank, Thank you for having me.